Hello, wonderful boys and girls, and welcome to Storytime with Avant-Garde Books. I'm Cherie Hardy, and today I will be reading Lessons from Our Ancestors. This book was written by R.L. Meadows in 2021. If you have a copy, feel free to read along with me. But if you don't, it's quite okay. Get in a very comfortable place and just get relaxed and listen and watch Lessons from Our Ancestors. Chapter 1, The Stranger in the Woods The middle school in Southampton, Virginia was struggling. The students lagged behind in every academic category. In math and science, they ranked near the bottom. It was one of Virginia's worst middle schools. However, Mr. Rollins, the principal, was determined to make a difference in school performance. Malik and Pop, whose real name was Gerald, attended Southampton Middle School. They were best friends. Both boys were from the same neighborhood. Malik was less than a year older than Pop. Malik was 15 and Pop was 14. As they were headed to their next class, they quickly ran down the stairs and through the door. Pop fell as he and Malik rounded the corner. Wait, yelled Pop. I hurt my ankle. Come on, urged Malik. The principal will see us. Pop finally caught up with Malik as they ran up the hill. When they topped the hill and ran through the thicket to the tree line, they found two or three old tree stumps and sat down. Both boys were completely out of breath. Finally, Malik asked, Did you bring the weed? Yeah, I got it, Pop answered. Smoking marijuana was Malik and Pop's pastime. Whenever Malik and Pop wanted to buy marijuana, they would buy it from Pop's older brother, Alex. Alex dropped out of school at 16 and began selling drugs. He quickly gained the reputation of a dangerous and shrewd dope dealer. Both Malik and Pop idolized Alex for his fancy clothes, the expensive cars, and the women. Malik and Pop wanted those things too. Sometimes during school hours, Malik and Pop would go downtown to steal. They broke into cars, stores, and warehouses. They would then take these stolen items to Alex. This is how they made money. As Malik and Pop were inhaling marijuana cigarettes, a stranger appeared. It was as though he appeared from out of the wisp of smoke. They both yelled and bolted towards the thicket. In a booming voice, the stranger yelled for them to halt. They both stopped immediately. As they turned toward the stranger, he beckoned for them to come closer. Malik and Pop gazed at the stranger. They noticed the old tattered suitcase he carried and the beat-up hat he wore. The old man was grizzled and gone. His skin dark skin had the look of someone who had spent many hours in the sun. Large abrasions and scarring encircled the area around his neck. Both boys noticed that the old man's eyes sparkled like a starlit sky. You scared the hell out of us, mister, shouted Pop. Who are you? cried Malik. Well, right now, my name is not important. You will know who I am when you both are ready, said the stranger. Where'd you come from? asked Malik. From the woods, replied the stranger. We were just in the woods. We didn't see you, chortled Pop. 
Perhaps you were so preoccupied with your funny-smelling cigarettes that you were unaware of my presence, said the stranger. Malik and Pop looked at each other and shook their heads. Well, let's see. We have Malik Bowles and Gerald Austin, stated the stranger. Pop and Malik were astonished. How did this stranger know their names? The boys wondered. Finally, the stranger asked Malik and Pop to sit next to him. Why are you boys not in school? The stranger asked. When I was your age, we were not allowed to have any book learning. Any colored man or woman caught with a book would be killed or sold. We don't need no school, old man. My brother showed us how to make money in the streets, shouted Pop. We've been hustling since we were ten years old, chided Malik. The stranger responded by saying, The money that you make at the cost of other people's suffering, misery, and pain will be a heavy burden for you both. Soon you will be enslaved by it. You will have no peace. Eventually your callousness will lead to your total destruction. Shut up, old man, they said in unison. Eventually, after sitting for a while, both Malik and Pop became sleepy. Five minutes later, they both were asleep. As they slept, each boy had dreams and visions about the consequences of their chosen lifestyles. Malik dreamed he was a drug kingpin. He had expensive jewelry, watches, cars, and clothes. He owned several large houses around the Southampton area. Malik enjoyed the extravagant lifestyle dealing drugs afforded. However, he began to worry about his money. Were people plotting against him? Did the FBI have him under surveillance? He often became ill because of his paranoia. He never slept at the same resident two residence two consecutive nights. As the next dream unfolded, Malik was standing before a judge. He was shackled at the waist and feet. Mr. Bowles, for the crime of drug trafficking, murder, and conspiracy, you are hereby sentenced to life without parole, said the judge. As he was being led away, he could see the pain and disappointment on his mother's face. Malik knew that he was the cause of her agony. The anguish on his mother's face would haunt him for the rest of his life. Pop also visualized his life unfolding in a dream. Pop loved guns, saw himself as a successful gun dealer. He envisioned himself moving thousands of guns through his network. He even sold guns to third world countries. His gun network made Pop millions of dollars. Oftentimes, the guns he sold ended up in the hands of despots and tyrants. Many innocent people were killed by the guns Pop illegally sold. As a dream unfolded, a new dream unfolded, Pop found himself standing near a gravesite. He had a folded newspaper in his hand. He was puzzled because he recognized the people standing around the grave. His mother, his younger sister, and several of his uncles encircled the site. He was perplexed because their faces were grief-stricken. Between sobs, he clearly heard his mother say, First Alex, now Gerald, both my sons are gone. Pop gazed at the headstone. He saw printed in large letters, Gerald Austin. He opened the newspaper and startled, and was startled by the caption, Gun dealer killed in shootout with police. Pop screamed as he read the headline. Malik and Pop awoke simultaneously. The dreams and visions that each boy had were traumatic. 
They both shook uncontrollably. Slowly, they began to calm down. Man, I dreamed that me and Alex were both dead. We were killed in shootouts with the police, moaned Pop. I dreamed I made millions selling drugs, and in the next dream, I was serving a life sentence without parole, exclaimed Malik. Man, I don't care what Alex says. I'm going back to school, yelled Pop. Me too, said Malik. Hey, what happened to the old man? He was here before we fell asleep, said Pop. I don't know. All I remember were his shining eyes like stars, said Malik. As they were fumbling with their books, they noticed an old, partially torn poster on the ground with some of the letters smudged and worn off. Hey, where did that old poster come from? asked Malik. It probably fell out of the old man's suitcase, exclaimed Pop. Malik picked up the poster so that he and Pop could read it. Wanted dead or alive, Nat Turner. The last letter of the name had been smudged out and was unrecognizable. Who was Nat Turner? asked Pop. I don't know, but let's go, said Malik. Twenty-five years later, the moderator stood on the stage at the awards banquet. He introduced the honorees. Ladies and gentlemen, would you give a warm round of applause to the men that made all of this possible, Dr. Malik Bowles and Professor Gerald Austin. Through their tireless efforts and dedication to uplifting the community, the new wing of the Southampton Middle School will be named the Bowles Austin Science Center. We named Bowles Austin Science Center. Malik and Pop never talked about the stranger in the woods again. Wow, boys and girls, that was chapter one of The Stranger in the Woods. Now, let's go on to chapter two. Chapter two, The North Star. The sun beamed brightly as Danielle and her younger brother splashed in the kiddie pool. This past winter had been extremely cold. Now summer had arrived, and the weather was beautiful. In celebration of Danielle's birthday, her parents took them camping. Maryland's second largest state park was magnificent this time of year. There was a large camping site located near the park's entrance. Near the western end was a large stable of horses. For a small fee, you could rent a horse and ride along the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. A pristine lake was located at the southern tip of the park. Danielle loved the multicolored sailboats as they floated lazily along the lake shore. However, the park was primarily known for the hundreds of hiking trails that existed in the enormous forest. These trails crisscrossed each other at certain locations. Some pathways led to dangerous cliffs or hazardous swamps. No one seemed to know why these old footpaths were designed in this manner. Warning signs were posted at the beginning of the passageway. Inexperienced hikers were urged to hire guides in order to keep them from getting lost. Many campers had been lost on the pathways. Some did not return. Later as the evening waned, Danielle noticed the pretty flowers up near the entrance to the trails. Mother, may I go up by the gate to pick some flowers, she asked. Initially, her mother said no. Danielle pleaded with her mother. Finally, her father intervened. 
You may go and pick the flowers around the gate, but do not venture down the pathway to the trails. I won't, she responded. Danielle walked up the gravel road that led to the entranceway. She stepped just inside the gate to look at the beautiful marigolds, tulips, and daisies. Against the backdrop of the warm evening sunlight, the flowers displayed a glimmering array of colors. The flowers were scattered on both sides of the pathway. Moments later, Daniel realized that she had perilously, perilously closed, walked too close to the hiking trails. Just as Daniel turned to go back towards the gate, a beautiful butterfly flew out of the honeysuckles. Ooh wee, a butterfly, she screamed. She began chasing it up and down the pathway. In her excitement, she carelessly ran onto the hiking trail, deep into the vast forest. Once in the forest, two diverging paths lay in front of her. The trail on the left was wider. Danielle could hear a small babbling brook that meandered towards a moss-covered rock pond. The path on the right was narrower. The trees along this path were taller and denser. The shadows cast by the trees along this path gave it an eerie feeling. As Danielle turned to walk out of the forest, she suddenly realized that this trail was unfamiliar. The butterfly was not on this trail, she thought. She had wandered onto one of the crisscrossing trails. Suddenly, a weird, creepy feeling came over her. I'm lost, she said out loud. Okay, okay, don't panic, she told herself. She began to walk up a slope towards a small clearing. Maybe I can see the entrance way from that vantage point, she thought. By the time she got near the top, the sun was already setting. When she arrived at the top of the knoll, the trail shifted back again. None of the terrain was familiar. It was dark now. Fireflies began to dart throughout the forest. Danielle sat down on a fallen tree. She was limp and began to sob. Danielle's mother was worried. Her intuition told her something was wrong. She should have been back by now, she said. Danielle's father frowned and looked toward the gate. You're right, he said. Danielle's mother and father had been busy breaking down the campsite. They did not notice that Danielle was not at the entrance. Let's go to the hiking trails to find her. Although I am sure she didn't break her promise, said her father. To their dismay, the trails went in all the directions. They went a few meters down one trail and stopped. Danielle's mother and father began to yell out her name. Danielle! Danielle! Where are you? shouted her mother. Baby girl! Baby girl! boomed her father. They had been in the woods nearly an hour calling for Danielle. It was now dark. They quickly scurried out of the forest back to the campsite. They were visibly upset and worried. Danielle's younger brother also became upset. The ranger station was half a mile from their campsite. They immediately went to the station to talk to the park ranger. The ranger station was closed. It was after hours, and most of the park attendants had left for the evening. The few that remained were scattered throughout the huge park. There was no one around to assist them. Finally, a ranger arrived to close the main gate to the park. Danielle's parents immediately flagged him down and told him what happened. The ranger had a disturbed look on his face. Those hiking trails are for experienced hikers and survival experts. Did she see the warning signs posted at the entrance, he asked. 
She was not hiking. She only went to the gate to pick flowers. Something must have lured her into the woods, Danielle's mother retorted. We need to find her, yelled Danielle's father. I will contact the director right away. We will have to assemble the search team and rescue teams promptly. It will take a few hours because the team members have left for the day, said the ranger. Please hurry, cried Danielle's mother. Move your campsite next to the entranceway. Create as much light as possible. If she by chance comes near the forest edge, she will see the lights, explained the ranger. Good idea, said the father. I promised I wouldn't go to the trails, Danielle amended. She knew her parents were worried. She was angry and disappointed with herself. She wondered whether she would ever regain their trust. Abruptly, her thoughts were interrupted by noises in the forest. She became frightened. The sounds were amplified by the night's cool air. The noises were terrifying. The crescendo of fluttering wings, screeching owls, loud snuffling and grunts sent shivers of fear throughout her body. Danielle decided she needed to move to a more secure area. She began slowly walking down one of the wider paths. A growl then, a loud squeal echoed from the underbrush on her right. Panic-stricken, Danielle sprinted off the path toward several trees nestled at the bottom of the small glen. Here the trees were shorter and wider. Danielle quickly shimmed up the nearest tree. She sought out a sturdy branch and sat down. Breathing heavily, she began to cry again. After a few minutes, she stopped weeping and her survival instincts began to take over. First, she realized that it was not wise to travel at night. She broke limbs and small branches and leaves to fashion a makeshift hammock. It would not be safe on the ground at night, she reasoned. Also, Danielle decided not to venture too far from the tree since people were probably looking for her. Danielle tied vines to her waist so she would not fall out of the tree. She positioned the hammock to brace her back against the trunk of the tree. As she lay in the hammock, Danielle noticed how close and beautiful the stars appeared. Her father taught her the locations of two constellations, Ursa Major and Sirius. She could actually see the North Star from her porch. Danielle's mother pulled three blankets from the back of the SUV. She gave Danielle's younger brother a blanket and kept one for herself. Danielle's father refused the offer. He decided on a heavy flannel jacket to keep warm. Just as the park ranger suggested, they placed a number of flashing lights at the forest edge. Her father decided to put more lights a half mile into the trails. Meanwhile, the park ranger was waiting to assemble, assemble the search and rescue teams. Because of the enormity of the park, each team had six members and a tracker. There were four teams which totaled 28 search and rescue personnel. However, all the team members were not present. It would be dawn before they began to search for Danielle. Finally, her father came back to the campsite after waiting several hours in the forest. He got more coffee and started back down to the flashing lights. Before leaving, he assured his wife that Danielle would be found safe. She's got your toughness, said her father. Meanness, too, yelled her younger brother. Danielle's mother managed to smile meekly as her father went into the forest to wait on her. Danielle stared at the stars as she lay in her tree bed. She began to contemplate on her purpose in life. 
loving parents, a beautiful home, private school education, Danielle knew that she was blessed. Many of her friends had only one parent in the home. Incarceration, poverty, and poor health decimated countless numbers of her friends' families. She decided from this point on to devote her life to serving others. She recalled the lesson learned from her grandmother. We are all here to serve. Incalculable numbers of our people were sacrificed or sacrificed themselves to enrich others. We now need to take our special gifts and talents to rebuild our people, she stated. Danielle noticed the moon peering over the mountains into the eastern sky. It cast a faint glow into the glen. She glanced at her watch to see the time. It was four o'clock in the morning. Ten hours had passed since she last saw her parents. She dozed off fully, fitfully in her hammock. She thought she heard a voice. Why are you in the tree? asked the voice. For a moment, she thought she was dreaming. Why are you in the tree? the voice asked again louder. Danielle had to squint in order to see the shadowy figure standing beneath the tree. As she peered closer, the woman was dressed in a Union Army peacoat and hat. The coat was adorned with medals of valor and the American flag. Come down, the woman said. Danielle slowly climbed down the tree. Now why were you in the tree, said the woman asked. Again, I was afraid of being attacked by a wild animal, Danielle said. Why are you in the woods at this late hour, asked the strange woman. I'm lost. I was not supposed to be in the woods. However, a beautiful butterfly flew out of the honeysuckles bush and I chased it down. I ran too far and I lost my way, admitted Danielle. Well, Danielle Brandon, you have traveled a great distance in the forest, said the woman. How did she know my name, Danielle thought. Who are you, Danielle inquired. My name is Harriet, said the woman. How did you find me? Danielle asked. I have walked these woods many times on moonlight nights such as this. I was following the North Star that your father showed you. It led me straight to you, Harriet said. I've led many of our people from bondage to freedom. We came directly through this forest. We established these freedom trails. They are part of the Underground Railroad. You're Harriet Tubman, shouted Danielle. That's what they call me. Come let us walk together, Harriet said. As they trapsied through the woods, Harriet began to talk about the Underground Railroad and the amount of courage it took to leave enslavement. We were constantly under the threat of death. Many of our people died making the journey north. They lie in unmarked graves along the footpaths. Fear also gripped many of our people. They would often try to return to their masters. I threatened them with death if they turned back, she said. Were you ever afraid? asked Danielle. Many times I've been afraid. However, I was called to do this work. I was accidentally hit in the head by my overseer. After healing, I began to have visions. I saw thousands of our people crossing into the North Territory. The visions gave me power. I conquered my fear of death. I no longer feared whites. Divine purpose trumps fear, she said. As they walked along, a small tributary, the sun peeped over the horizon. Dawn had arrived. The park ranger came down to Danielle's family's campsite. The search team will be ready shortly, he said. 
the last member of the rescue team, is en route. Thank you, said Mrs. Brandon excitedly. Danielle's younger brother tried valiantly to stay awake, but to no avail. He could not stay awake. He snored peaceful in the rear of the SUV. Danielle's father waited patiently at the forest's edge. He had a vague feeling his daughter would find her way out of the forest. Danielle and Harriet walked for nearly three hours. Seemingly no time had passed. As they rounded the bend, Danielle could hear the sound of the babbling stream. This is the path where I chase the butterfly, she shouted. She realized that she was near the entrance of the trails. Harriet began to speak. I have guided you from deep within the forest. There are many crisscrosses and switch back and forth trails in this forest. They were established to confuse the slave catchers. Many years ago, these trails were booby-trapped. We put spike pits and sinkholes on these pathways to cripple them and their horses. Often, the slave catchers would be directly in front of us. They would be so close, they could, we could smell them and their horses, but they could never find us in this forest. Danielle was fascinated. She wondered why there were so many passageways in these woods. Wow, she exclaimed. You're safe now. Up the slope and to the right are the diverging trails. You will see your father waiting for you, stated Harry. Miss Tubman, how can I ever repay you, asked Danielle. You are my last assignment, Danielle. I can take my rest now. Love our people and follow your heart. Do that and you will be successful, said Harry. Danielle watched solemnly as Harriet Tubman walked into the mist and disappeared. The park ranger divided the huge park into four large quadrants. Each search and rescue team would be assigned a quarter section of the forest. Twenty-eight people were ready to search for Danielle. As each team moved their equipment into position, a loud scream was heard. Danielle! someone shouted. The rescue teams turned just in time to see Danielle running towards her father. She had found her way out of the forest. Thank God you're safe, her mother screamed. How on earth did you find your way out of those trails, honey? asked her mother. Harriet Tubman led me out of the forest. I thought I was dreaming, but it was no dream. She was real. She told me about her life and mission. When we got to the stream, she walked away in the mist, said Danielle. Her father the skeptic told her not to confuse dreams with reality. You are extremely lucky, he said. Her mother was not so sure that luck was involved. After being checked by the park's medical staff, Danielle was free to leave. Before leaving, the park ranger came to talk with Danielle. Young lady, you are very lucky. There are hundreds of crisscrossing and switchback and forth trails in that forest. Even our rangers and trackers have to mark their positions so they won't get lost. You have no hiking or survival experience, yet you found your way out. Many hikers have been lost for days in that forest. I don't know how you did it. Again, you one lucky lady. Danielle simply smiled and waved as they drove away. Wow, boys and girls, that is the end of Chapter 2, The North Star, when you met Harriet Tubman. Let's go to Chapter 3. Chapter 3 The Bully Caleb never knew his father. He was the unintended victim in a drive-by shooting. At the time, Caleb was only two months of age. At the time of his death, Louisville had a tremendous drug problem. 
Kentucky was considered the fourth most dangerous state in the Union. Caleb's mother worked two jobs most days. She made sure he had everything he needed for school. Nice clothes, shoes, school supplies, and an allowance she spared no expense. He was her only child. When Caleb arrived home, he went straight to his room. Usually, he would go into the kitchen to get a snack. Not today. He cleaned his room and began to do homework. He was an exceptional student. Math and science were his favorite subjects. For the past three years, he placed no lower than third in the regional math competition. Caleb, where are you? yelled his mother as she jostled through the front door. I'm upstairs, yelled Caleb. Okay, I'm headed to the hotel. Don't wake up, she said. Mrs. Walker worked as an insurance adjuster during the day. At night, she managed the front desk at one of the hotels near the airport. Caleb wished his mother didn't work so hard. He was amazed at how quickly she could shower, put on her uniform, and be out the door in 10 minutes or less. As he heard her drive away, he pondered his predicament. He knew he was no match for Bishop physically. He would be a lopsided fight and he would lose. He needed a way to defend himself, but how? The only thing he could think of was a weapon. Caleb was streetwise. He knew where to get a gun. Many of his father's old friends still lived in the neighborhood. They all had weapons. However, he knew his mother abhorred guns. She would not even mention the word. Caleb sighed. I don't know what else to do. He took a shower and laid down. He thought about his relationship with Bishop. He had known him since sixth grade. Caleb was aware that Bishop was a foster child. His mother gave him up at birth. Initially, Bishop moved from one foster home to the next. Finally, an older couple decided to give him a home. His foster parents enrolled him at Louisville Middle School. Bishop and Caleb were the same age. They were also in the same classroom. At the beginning, Bishop was shy and awkward, but as time progressed, he gained self-confidence. For nearly two and a half years, Caleb had no issues with Bishop. However, in the third year together, he noticed a big change in Bishop's attitude. He was pushy and more aggressive. Several times, he was expelled from school for fighting. Caleb heard from friends that Bishop threatened to beat people if they didn't give him money. This news disturbed Caleb. He did not like the idea of someone taking advantage of another individual. However, Bishop was big and everybody was afraid of him. Several months ago, Caleb's mother purchased a pair of very expensive sneakers for him. Often, she would reward him with name brand items because of his academic performance. Bishop noticed the shoes as Caleb stood by his locker in the hallway. Nice shoes, man, said Bishop. Thanks, replied Caleb. Man, I want a pair like those, stated Bishop. You can buy them at the mall, said Caleb. Buy? I ain't buying no shoes. I want yours, demanded Bishop. You crazy, man. You can't have my shoes. Plus, they wouldn't fit, argued Caleb. Without warning, Bishop quickly pinned him against his locker. Since I can't have the shoes, you better bring me some money tomorrow, Bishop said angrily. Caleb, who hardly could hardly breathe because of Bishop's forearm on his neck, nodded his head. You hear me, man? Bishop said menacingly. Okay, okay, let me go, cried Caleb. As Caleb lay on his bed recalling the events of the past several months, he knew he had to stand up to Bishop. The thought of getting a gun crossed his mind again. Caleb decided he needed some time to think. 
He would not go to school tomorrow. He would convince his mother that he was sick. When she left for work, he would walk over to the old warehouse district. Perhaps he could find some old friends of his father. Next morning, he told his mother that he didn't feel well. Feel well. What's the matter, son? She said. Don't you? You don't look sick. It's my stomach, Mom, said Caleb. Do you need me to stay home with you? She asked attentively. No, I'll be okay, said Caleb. All right, I'll be home early, she said. As the mother walked out the door, he ran upstairs to get dressed. He did not wait to face Bishop today. He needed a plan. Caleb locked the front door and headed towards the old warehouse neighborhood. Once a thriving industrial hub, the area was littered with crumbling buildings and dense overgrowth. The police precinct was torn down long ago, but the old boxing gym still remained. He decided to walk down to the small cafe located on the northern end of the district. His mother would occasionally bring him to the restaurant whenever they visited his father's friends. When he arrived, the place was closed. Why is the cafe closed, he thought. Let me get out of here, he said out loud. Caleb started walking back toward the old gym. As he passed the gym, a faint glow was emanating from the side window. Out of curiosity, he walked to the side door near the rear. The door was slightly ajar. He pushed it open and walked into the old musty gym. Suddenly he heard noises coming from a dimly lit room. I float like a butterfly. I sting like a bee. Your hands can't hit what your eyes can't see. I'm going to send them to heaven in seven. It sounded as though someone was hitting something. Caleb walked over and peered into the room. He saw a big man hitting a large stuffed bag. The man rhymed words as he punched the bag. Caleb was mesmerized. The big man moved with such elegance and grace. His hands slapped the sack-shaped object so quickly that he could see, couldn't see his hands. Wow, thought Caleb. After shadow boxing a few rounds, the big man turned his attention to him. Caleb Walker. Why are you here? asked the big man. How did he know my name? thought Caleb. The big man moved closer to him and introduced himself. My name is Muhammad Ali, he stated while smiling. Man, you're Muhammad Ali, Caleb said ecstatically. Yes, I am, said the big man. No school today? asked Muhammad. I didn't go to school today, said Caleb. Why? asked Muhammad. Caleb explained to Muhammad that the problem he was having with Bishop the fact that Bishop not only extorted money from him, but from other students as well. Are you afraid of him? asked Muhammad Ali. Yes, replied Caleb. I need a gun. Bad choice. A gun will not solve the problem. The use of a weapon will simply make things worse. You could kill Bishop and lose your freedom, or he could kill you and lose his freedom. Either way, you both are dead, stated Muhammad Ali. Then teach me how to box, said Caleb. Not enough time, said Muhammad. What shall I do? asked Caleb. Muhammad began to speak. There is nothing wrong with being afraid. Used pro- properly, fear can motivate us to accomplish great things. However, you cannot allow fear to replace courage and conviction. I will give you a prime example. When I refused to be inducted into the U.S. military based on moral and religious reasons, the U.S. government convicted me of draft invasion. I was stripped of my heavyweight crown, fined $10,000, and sentenced to five years in federal prison. I was frightened. How would my family survive? What about my boxing career? 
Could I endure five years in a prison cell? However, I did not allow fear to change my moral and religious stance. If it meant serving five years in prison for objecting to war, I would have done so gladly. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad, who was my first teacher, taught me that a Muslim must stand for righteousness regardless of the consequences. Do not be afraid, Caleb. When you go to school tomorrow, remember two words, courage and conviction. See you later. I gotta finish my workout. Caleb turned to walk out of the room. When he got to the doorway, he turned to wave goodbye. He was shocked. There was no dim light, no punching bag, and no Muhammad Ali. Just the familiar smell of an old, musty gym. It was as if it never happened. Caleb quickly scurried home. He wanted to arrive before his mother. He opened the front door and dashed upstairs, removed his clothes, and put on his pajamas. He went downstairs to the kitchen to make a sandwich. He grabbed his sandwich with a Coke and returned upstairs. As he reflected on the encouragement from Muhammad Ali, Caleb knew he would have to face Bishop tomorrow. Later, his mother came home to check on him. I'm fine, Ma, he said. Tomorrow I'm going to school. Okay, honey, I'm off to the hotel, she yelled. The next morning, he left for school. He wanted to prepare himself for a confrontation with Bishop. Physically, he was no match for the oversized eighth grader. Although fearful, Caleb felt an overwhelming sense of calmness. His encounter with Muhammad Ali stirred something deep within his spirit. He put his book in his locker and walked to the water fountain. After a few sips, he sauntered back to his locker. After 15 minutes of waiting, he decided to go to his homeroom. Before he could grab his books, Bishop was standing in front of him. Hey, chump, you ready to pay me? Asked Bishop, why you missed school yesterday? Caleb stepped directly in front of Bishop, looked him squarely in the eyes and said, I'm not afraid of you. You will not bully me or anyone else at our school. Come on, everyone, yelled Caleb. Immediately, 40 students surrounded Caleb and Bishop. The students began to chant, We will not be bullied. We will not be bullied. Bishop stood flabbergasted. We will fight you every day if necessary. If you attack one of us with violence, then you will have to attack all of us. We stand together, yelled Caleb. Bishop glanced at the large number of students. Without saying a word, he grabbed his books and departed. Everyone cheered. Later it was revealed that Bishop apologized to the entire student body for his intolerable behavior. Unbeknown to Bishop, Caleb came to school early. He quickly organized a group of students to challenge Bishop. If we stand together in unity and not succumb to fear, we can take back our school. He cannot bully us if we are united, yelled Caleb. After the encounter with Bishop, the students launched an anti-bullying campaign throughout all the middle schools in the Louisville area. As Caleb walked through the door, his mother heard him humming a little rhyme. I float like a butterfly, I sting like a bee. Your hands can't hit what your eyes can't see. What are you singing, honey? Asked his mother. Nothing, Mom, he said as he ran upstairs. All right, boys and girls, that was the end of Chapter 3, The Bully. Let's move on to Chapter 4. Chapter 4 Pee-wee. Pee-wee started playing baseball when he was six years old. It was the first year that the city of Cairo established league play based on age. The team manager, a good friend of his father, taught him the fundamentals of baseball. Pee-wee's father and the manager were from Cairo, Georgia. They both played minor league baseball in the old Southern League. Two years later, Pee-wee advanced to the Pony League. 
the eight and nine-year-olds played in this division. Unfortunately, at this level, Pee-wee's skills were average at best. Many of the boys were bigger, faster, and generally better players. As time progressed, he began to have self-doubt about his ability to play baseball. He complained to his father that maybe he wasn't good enough to play the game. You want to quit, Pee-wee? asked his father. I'm not sure, exclaimed Pee-wee. Do you love the game? asked his father. Yes, very much, replied Pee-wee. Never give up on something that you love. A player's talent doesn't make him a winner. If you can't be the best player, be the best teammate. What you lack in physical stature, you can compensate for with mental toughness and focus. Regardless of ability or skill, you cannot defeat the player that will not give up. You will have to outwork the other players, Pee-wee, exclaimed his father. Thanks, Dad. Even though he appreciated the pep talk, Pee-wee still had lingering doubts about his baseball skills. However, he continued to work on the fundamentals. Even though his talent was mediocre, he was one of the smartest players on the team. After two years of Pony League play, Pee-wee moved up to Bronco Division. The 11-year-old and 12-year-old players were in this league. This was Pee-wee's second attempt to play at this level. Last year, he broke his leg sliding into second base. This year, he was healthy and feeling good. Pee-wee wanted to play for Cairo for the Cairo Blue Jays. Last year, the team placed second in the South Georgia Regional Competition. Each team was allowed 20 players. He and Manuel Vasquez competed for the shortstop position. Damn it, said Pee-wee as the ball rolled under his glove for a second time. Come on, Pee-wee, yelled Derek, the third baseman. You got to feel the ball. The competition for position players lasted two weeks. All seven positions were settled except for shortstop. He and Manuel were the last competitors remaining. Pee-wee knew it was a slim chance at best for him being the starter. His batting average was worse than Manuel's, and he led the teams in errors. After practice, the manager informed the team that the starting shortstop would be announced tomorrow. The next day, the manager called for a team meeting. Manuel Vasquez will start at shortstop. He said, Pee-wee, I got confidence in you. Continue to work hard on your game. Manuel is further along as a player. Nonetheless, you made the team. You will be a substitute whenever a player is hurt or sick. He thanked the coach as he sat on the bench. He watched dejectedly as the team began warm-up practice. The Cairo Blue Jays were an excellent team. They won 12 games and lost only four during the first month of league play. Pee-wee waited patiently for his turn to play. Several starters had been sick, but the manager never put him in the game. He began. He became disgruntled. He started to get down on himself. Maybe I'm just not good enough to play on this team, he thought. He called his dad and told him he wanted to walk home. The game had been over for several hours. He needed time to think. After the players and coaches left, he was alone in the ballpark. Twilight began to settle over the park. Pee-wee picked up his ball and began throwing it against the backstop. Hello, young man, a voice said softly. Pee-wee turned and saw a dark-skinned man wearing an old Brooklyn Dodgers uniform. He had a wonderful smile and was very charismatic. Pee-wee was in shock. 
Hello, said Pee-wee, his voice quivering. My name is Jackie, said the man in the uniform. I know, you're Jackie Robinson, Pee-wee said excitedly. You're correct, Pee-wee Walker, said Jackie. I understand you love baseball, Jackie continued. Yes, I do, responded Pee-wee, but apparently I'm not good enough to play for the Cairo Blue Jays. Not so fast, said Jackie. One of the greatest virtues of any endeavor is self-confidence. When Mr. Branch Rickey selected me to be the first Negro Major League baseball player, he demanded two things, character and self-control. He knew that I was an exceptional ball player. However, could I restrain my emotions? He knew that I would have I would be taunted, spat upon, called the N-word, and other terrible things. The first two years were difficult. The constant barrage of insults began to take its toll on me. Nonetheless, I realized that being the first black major league ball player was an honor. I could not disappoint my people. After two years, the abuse stopped. Listen, come to the field at dusk. I will give you pointers on hitting and fielding. Pee-wee agreed. For the next two weeks, Pee-wee came to the park after sunset. Jackie was a wonderful teacher. He quickly realized that Pee-wee was a fast learner. Jackie taught him proper footwork and glove placement for the shortstop position. Pee-wee learned to steal bases and rotate his hips when he swung the bat. After a month of instructions, Jackie came to say goodbye. Remember the lessons. You will have your opportunity to shine, said said Jackie. Pee-wee watched as the essence of Jackie Robinson blended into the darkness. As the Cairo Blue Jays continued to win, Pee-wee worked tirelessly on his baseball skills. The Cairo Blue Jays won 20 games and lost only eight. Last year, they finished second. This year, they came in first. They would play the Thomasville Dodgers in the championship game for the Pop Warner Trophy. The Dodgers finished with an excellent record of 26-4. and The game was scheduled to be played at the local high school field, which had a larger seating capacity. On the day of the game, Manuel contracted a fever. His mother informed the manager that he could not play. The coaching staff was worried. Not only was he the starting shortstop and the best hitter, he was also the best defensive player on the team. However, instead of starting Pee-wee, the manager decided to start Benny Williams, the backup second baseman. Again, Pee-wee felt overlooked. He did not become irate. He simply waited patiently for his time to shine. In this age bracket, teams only played seven innings. Thomasville led three to one going into the sixth inning. Unexpectedly, a hard-hit ball struck the Cairo shortstop on his knee. A popping sound was heard as Benny Williams fell to the ground. The trainer ran onto the field instantly. A quick examination revealed a massive contusion on his kneecap. We won't be able to continue. He won't be able to continue, yelled the trainer. Pee-wee, yelled the manager. You're in. Pee-wee ran out onto the field and took his position as shortstop. The Dodgers had players at first and second. With only one out, the Blue Jays desperately needed a double play. Suddenly, the batter hit a hard ground ball deep to Pee-wee's right side. He backhanded the ball, pivoted flawlessly, made a perfect throw to the second baseman. The second baseman threw to first to complete the double play. Wow, yelled the third baseman. 
That's the greatest play I've ever seen all season. As Pee-wee walked back to the dugout, he received high fives from all his teammates and coaches. Way to go, Pee-wee, yelled the manager. It was the bottom of the seventh inning. The Blue Jays needed three runs to win the game. The Blue Jays managed to get two players on base with two out. The Dodgers took their starting pitcher out of the game. They brought in their best relief pitcher to get the last out. It was Pee-wee's turn at bat. All right, Pee-wee, we count on you, yelled the manager. Pee-wee walked over to home plate. He took a few practice swings to loosen up. The pitcher quickly threw two strikes on him. He could hear his teammates urging him on. Suddenly, everything went quiet. He could not hear the fans or his teammates. It was as though he was in a trance. A voice deep from within told him to slow his breathing down, raise his right elbow, and spread his feet farther apart. Watch where the pitcher releases the ball and track it with your eyes, the voice reminded him. When the pitcher threw the ball, he watched the trajectory as it moved towards home plate. With incredible leverage and bat speed, he hit the ball with so much force that it sailed over the left field wall. Thank you, Jackie, as he rounded the bases. A walk-off home run by Pee Wee Walker Parker, yelled the announcer. Pee-wee was hoisted onto the shoulders of his teammates and paraded around the field while the hometown fans chanted his name. Pee-wee, Pee-wee, Pee-wee. During the award ceremony, Pee-wee was named Most Valuable Player. After the ceremony was over, Pee-wee's dad walked over to him. Son, I want to ask you a question. How did you get so good in just two weeks? Confidence, Dad. Confidence replied Pee-wee. All right, boys and girls, that is the end of chapter four. We got one more chapter to go. Chapter five is coming up. Chapter five, Old Moles and Smokey. Damn, oh hell no, said Jamal as he gazed down the corridor. The correctional officer was walking directly to his cell. Jamal was in a bad mood. He had served nearly a year of his five-year sentence. He was convicted of drug possession and burglary. Like many teenagers, he became a victim of the three strikes law, a law set in place to give repeat offenders longer sentences. Last month, because of disciplinary reasons, his homeboy was transferred upstate. Jamal and Jay Rock were from the same neighborhood. They were teammates on the Westchester County Middle School basketball and football teams. Damn, Jamal exclaimed again. I don't want this old man in my cell. As Smokey walked down the hallway towards his new cell, he wondered whether he would have trouble with his young cellmate. Smokey was serving a 25-year-to-life sentence for robbery gone terribly wrong. Two people were shot. One was killed. Even though Smokey did not pull the trigger, he received the same life sentence as his two co-defendants. 23rd This was his 23rd year in prison. He recalled all the fighting and disciplinary actions taken against him during his first five years of incarceration. He was often depressed and moody. He blamed his misfortune on everyone else except himself. His anger and bitterness began to consume him. That is until he met old man Mose. Mose was a lifer. He had served over 30 years behind bars. Mose and Smokey's cells were adjacent to each other. 
At first, he ignored Old Man Mose. However, every day, Old Man Mose would speak kindly to him. He would always ask Smokey about his feelings. Mose was one, was one voracious reader. There were piles and piles of books next to his bunk bed. Even though Smokey only finished the eighth grade, he read very well. As Smokey peered through the soft light streaming from old Moses' cell, he noticed several titles of books. The Autobiography of Malcolm X, The Fall of America, Behold the Pale Horse, The Teachings of Don Juan, A Yaqui Way of Knowledge, The Introduction of Buddhism to the West, and The Essential Tao. Old Mose had one extremely large volume called The Teachings and Philosophy of Socrates. Mose even had books propped against the wall of his cell. I don't know why old man Mose read all those books, chided Smokey. If you're going to die in prison, what's the point? As a gesture of friendship, old Mose gave Smokey a book to read. It was the autobiography of Malcolm X. He had never read an entire book in his life. Nevertheless, the reading of this book seemed to have unlocked his mind. The floodgates were open. He began to stockpile books. Reading opened up a bold new world for Smokey. How can I ever repay you, Mose? Smokey asked. Old man Mose replied, Never let a man wallow in ignorance and darkness. Pull back the veil and allow him to breathe the fresh air of wisdom and knowledge. The next day, old Mose was transferred to a minimum security prison. He would serve out the rest of his life sentence in this facility. Smokey smiled slightly as he recalled the all-night debates with Mose. Like their chess games, he seldom won. When old Mose departed, Smokey made it his mission to make whole all the inmates that needed him. As Smokey sat on his bunk, unpacking his books, pens, and notebooks, he noticed the young man staring at him. He was not frightened. Years in the penal system had taught him patience. He will come around, thought Smokey. Oftentimes in the penal system, trustees are paired with newer convicts to help the newer inmate adjust to confinement. First, Smokey needed Jamal to relax. He had to convince him that he was not his enemy. If you are in confinement to maintain your sanity, you must develop a routine. This could be a job or hobby that you do daily. These practices establish a sense of purpose and self-worth. Jamal noticed that every morning at 4 a.m., Smokey would sit with his ankles folded under his legs. His eyes would be closed and his breath deep and slow. He would also do 300 push-ups, 300 sit-ups, and 50 chin-ups. Jamal's curiosity finally got the best of him. Why do you do sit-ups with your legs folded and your eyes closed? asked Jamal. I will tell you if you read this book said Smokey. Yeah, okay, I'll do it, said Jamal half-heartedly. So Smokey handed him the autobiography of Malcolm X. Smokey found out that, like himself, Jamal never knew his father. The stress of raising three children was too much for Smokey's mother. To cope with the depression and loss of hope, she turned to the bottle. She died while Smokey was in prison. Smokey forgave his mother and a father and his father a long time ago. He forgave himself for the crimes he committed. He also mailed letters to the victim's families asking for forgiveness. He no longer felt bitter about his life and the fact that he ended up in prison. 
Old Mose had taught him that the only true acts of courage are forgiveness, compassion, and love. Smokey knew Jamal was angry and bitter about his life. He hated his mother. He blamed her for his father not being a part of his life. When his mother became addicted to crack cocaine, Defox declared her unfit to raise children. Jamal and his three siblings moved in with an aunt. It was at this time that Jamal began to steal and break into homes. His first visit to juvenile detention was at age 15. His life spiraled out of control from that point. He is now locked in a prison cell for five years. Smokey began to teach Jamal about overcoming adversity. There is a basic law of physics that states that for every action, an opposite or counteract reaction is created. If your intentions are based on love, then the only thing returning to you is love. Many people who are jealous, resentful, or hostile are simply afraid. If you are to survive the journey of life, you must learn to separate your true self from your emotional self. By eliminating negative thought patterns, you will enhance your ability to perceive and act in a non-judgmental way. Understand your emotions, whether positive or negative, are the body's reaction to a thought. When you become proficient at controlling your thoughts, your emotional body cannot control your feelings. This is the first step toward self-mastery. Remember, thoughts in and of themselves have no power. It is when we allow them to dominate our thinking that we encounter emotional issues. Once you comprehend these concepts, no prison wall can hold you, Jamal, said Smokey. As Jamal gained more knowledge, he realized that he had he continued down the road of negative thoughts and behavior. He would have created a dark and lonely world for himself. Smokey showed him the way out of darkness. Suddenly, a great revelation unfolded in his mind. Freedom is about choices. Whether you are in the free world or behind bars, true freedom is simply the ability to choose. Then and there, Jamal made up his mind that he would never be held captive by negative emotions and behavior. It was this choice, his true freedom. Tears welled up in Jamal's eyes. He began to sob uncontrollably. All his fears, frustrations, and self-hatred were released. Jamal hid his face in the pillow so that no one could see his tears. He did not want the other inmates to see him bawling. As he gained his composure, he overheard the guards telling Smokey he had been transferred yet again. He was being moved to the same facility as his mentor, Old Mose. Smokey looked at Jamal and smiled. I've given you all that you need to live your life. My work here is finished. There is another man downstate that needs me. Thank you, yelled Jamal as Smokey disappeared down the hall. Wow, well, boys and girls, that is the end, and that is the end of chapter five Old Mose and Smokey. The author of this book is R.L. Meadows, and he was born on a small farm in a rural country in East Georgia. He was raised by his grandparents, who owned an extensive collection of books. Many of these books were written during the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. When not doing farm work, Meadows could be found in the study reading, captivated by classic library literary works like Paradise Lost, and The Real Diary of a Real Boy. 
After attending Morrisbound College for one year, Meadows transferred to Georgia State University. However, later he moved to Athens, Georgia to attend the University of Georgia. While in Athens, he met his lovely wife, now deceased. They had two wonderful daughters. After Meadows retired, he returned to his first love, writing. Although he hopes to pen the great American novel, one day he loves the power and magic of creating short stories that convey a moral theme. Meadows is available to do readings and at events in the Atlanta metropolitan area. Wonderful boys and girls, thank you for listening, watching, and learning from this great book, Lessons from Our Ancestors, written by R.L. Meadows. And if you would like to get a copy, you need to email meadowsronnie28 at gmail.com. Have a great day, boys and girls.